Hey, everyone. It's Vanessa, and I'm here to talk to you about Noom. Noom is a personalized weight loss plan. It's not just one size fits all. It takes into account your dietary restrictions, your medical issues, and any other personal needs. It's like a psychology plan. Just it meets you where you are. And it also recognizes that losing weight is really a mental process. It starts with your motivation and with your brain. Noom's approach is also grounded in science. They've published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles that describe their methods and effectiveness. So stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. You can sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes. It's available to buy now wherever books are sold. Campsite Media. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Infamous, a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. I'm Vanessa Grigoriadis. So we just wrapped up the narrative part of our story about Google Glass, moonshot ideas, and infidelity in Silicon Valley. And now we're going to have somebody on who knows the tech world very intimately and even spent some time exploring New York wearing Google Glass. Virginia Heffernan is, um, as I like to describe her, the world's biggest public intellectual. (laughs) Um, She is an unbelievable writer, podcaster. You may have heard her on Trumpcast or on her other podcast. This is critical. You're basically like a cultural Kara Swisher. You know, you're the one oh. who's describing how the things work. You can have you can have that, by the yeah. way, for your bio. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have the great gift of learning, particularly through little droppings on the internet and video droppings that still exist, that you were one of the earliest wearers of Google Glass. That's right. So you were <laughs> you were an explorer. Where other people roll their eyes at a new tech, I just tend to be like a segue. Don't mind if I do. So how did that work exactly? Did you have to be like a who's who to get it? No. I mean, who else got it? It just you had to write a proposal. It was like I'm trying to get a Guggenheim. I mean, it was a <laughs> Googleheim. Um, it was like you had to say what you were going to use it for, and um, and I said I would use it for. Because I was sure it would be all kinds of like bungee jumpers and people on mountaintops, you know, how like it's always really sporty people. But I thought maybe my I had a slot for saying that it would be for um, for like a city, kind of a city. Right. Um, Okay. So you get this pair of glasses, I guess. I went to a place in... Um, lower Manhattan and I was assigned this guy Norm now it didn't it didn't look not like the Apple store but there were some efforts to make it less that so it was like organic modern it's like a concrete floor and reclaimed wood tables but it was super clean and the people Mm -hmm. were like Apple store early Apple store people Norm is just like was like just this perfect person just like like dreadlocks and great personality and just like giant (laughs) smile. And he has stayed friends with me 
even amazing yes and he you know he's <laughs> even as google glass has come and gone the friendship persists. that's right it was yeah. just this like this moment this spark that that brought us together so what did it look like when you when you i mean we describe it as something like a pocket protector for your eyes <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I mean, it's like there's sort of two ways to see it. You could kind, you could see it as instantly marking you as what came to be called a glass hole, um, like almost instantly came to be called a glass <laughs> hole. So there was just something, like you say, pocket protectorish about it that was going to um, stigmatize you. But at the same time, it was kind of special to be in the presence of um, something that was really new and something that offered you a little hologram of of the internet in, right in front of your eyes. And I have that neato response. I saw it as something that could have cool applications and possibilities. So while it quickly reduced to the camera, Norm did show me how he might use it and how he used it, I think, with his wife. So he was sh- would be shopping. I remember the example was, and he was choosing fruit. And then his wife in real time could say, um, oh, you know, choose that avocado, not this one. But um, you don't want to be seen in them, you know? And that was what became instantly apparent to me as I walked around New York. Um, there was like no percentage in it. And it's a, it's a really small device, uh, like really narrow device. And yet, right on your freaking face. So there's no, you know, there was no discretion to it. It wasn't like some kind of flesh colored, you know, like a hearing aid or whatever that's meant to kind of be discreet. No, this is this this was an extension of man, like McLuhan would call it, that really was like a weird prosthesis. Um, yeah, I mean, there's videos of you walking around Momofuku and just, you know, muttering <laughs> to yourself. Yeah. I'm still alive. I'm still talking to myself. Uh, I mean, what did people say to you? Um, So it was interesting. It felt like a time when people wanted a more kind of earthy aesthetic. It was like the culture was like hard tacking the other direction away from futuristic sci-fi kind of stuff. That was especially true in self-congratulatory borough Brooklyn. Um, And so at Mama Fuko and at a couple other cafes and walking down the street in Brooklyn, I felt a little like you just didn't want to bring too much Silicon Valley. So you can see in that video, I'm noticing like, um, you know, it's like cold brew and yoga mats and then people talking about how they made their own shoes or they were butchering their own meat or they were going to maker studios all the time. (laughs) So it felt like they were living in this material world and I was still trying to like abstract myself into some kind of Jetsons consciousness and it just felt out of sync. So mostly, except for one person, people averted their eyes from me. Like I was, for one, I was talking to myself. I'm just muttering to myself, like, (laughs) self-consciously. I feel like I'm like really low-level, forgotten husband, reality contestant, but everyone just wants to avert their eyes. I felt like I was 11. Like I was just like, oh my God, like, why is everyone looking at me? Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, what's so interesting is this happened at a time when Apple had not quite yet won the cool war. 
right? And we're going to play some of this Yahoo interview that you have where you're like, I feel like this is for the common man. I'm totally freestyling here, but a little more like middle middle brow or middle class than... The than average man. It's technology for the average, for the could, average man? It could, you know, because it's exciting for the average man, you know, the way like a, like a motorcycle is. Heffernan once again calling it that the Apple <laughs> iPhone was almost obsolete, but Google Glass was going to saturate the nation. Um, I really, I was on it. <laughs> so what how did Google lose this war to Apple? Like how yeah. did they lose the cool war? I think at the time Google was so associated with search and Google was associated with being free. And and it was also open to other technologies. I think right around this time Apple refused to use Google Maps as standard on its phone and decided to make their own maps which meant you know, getting all this uh, GPS technology in place and and they were slow to make a good map. And I just thought Apple was so cloistered and unwilling to play with others and that Google's openness would be the future. And and that that was all true, though. They they are cloistered and unwilling to play with others. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And they, you know, I don't know how they got everyone into their cloister. Is the lesson that design won. And that continues sort of to this day, right? Yeah. Like not that not that the Android phones aren't like perfectly good phones, but they're not as designed. Yeah. I mean, I that absolutely. I think design won that way. I mean, one way to tell and I think I could tell if I'm honest, looking back, I wanted to take it off almost as soon as I put it on. <laughs> it doesn't feel great to have a hologram floating in front of your eyes. But there was a way when I looked at the iPad, when I first got the iPad and I was playing uh, Angry Birds on it. And I just thought, oh, man, this screen just feels so good to touch. I don't want to put this thing down about the right. iPad or the iPhone. Um, I have trouble putting it down. Um, where the opposite was true. And the opposite has been true with all other AR and VR headsets. You just freaking want to take it off, you know? I don't think I realized um, at the time how much touch is, um, and haptics are like an, a really nice component of iPhones. I mean, what's hapt? What's haptics? Oh, haptics, like um, how the thing feels in your hand. And the most okay. obvious example is the vibration of, say, the Apple Watch or the um, the iPhone that, you know, you can get, you can uh, set it to vibrate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, um, and just, I'm holding this in my hand, the human hand. Infamous will be right back. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town. To The Swan, where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, Comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently, The Big Flap looked at The Swan, a competition show between women who were hoping to transform their physical appearance. The problem? The women were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. It all led to trauma for the contestants and terrible reviews. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus.
This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the podcast, we have Nick Bilton saying these glasses were killed by Sergei. Sergei killed Google Glass. And obviously, Sergey Brin, when we think about the pantheon of big tech billionaires right now, we think like Elon, Bezos, Bill Gates. Where's Sergey in this whole thing? Like, what is his profile in this pantheon? I mean, I don't know, Vanessa, if you've had the experience of trying to get some of these people to pose for at-homes or, you know, participate mm-hmm. in Vanity Fair profiles. I mean, when I was at the Times overlapping with you, I thought we need a profile of Johnny Ive, right, of the chief designer at, at Apple of the time. And I thought, well, when the New York Times calls you at Google or at Apple, you the person instantly is like, please come to my house and I have 25 photo right. shoots and you'd play to their vanity. They just would not return calls. And Google was notorious for that. They just did nothing, just didn't show up for stuff and styled themselves as intellectual galaxy brains. I mean, they were just part of this overclass who, you know, private plane world, um, who kind of opined with each other about how to live forever. You know, stuff like their weird project about immortality, deciding Mm -hmm. that biology human biology or or death and decay was just like a bug in the human code um, and they could fix it. They were aiming for um, the singularity, you know, the the crazy Mm -hmm. idea that like machines and humans will somehow merge and become one. And they were looking at, yeah, AI, the metaverse, um, Mars, immortality, you know, probably what I think of as like the kind of big four overman galaxy brain places where tech is going. And Google was really, really on top of that. Um, Right. And I think they're still sort of there, right? I mean, you know, Larry Page is working on like flying cars. Sergey is incredibly private, but we know that he's, you know, yachting around a lot and he's got this sort of Burning Man lifestyle, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, what did you think I'm sure you saw the Wall Street Journal story about uh, Sergey and Elon and um, supposedly Elon slept with Sergey's wife at the time, who he's now getting divorced from. Just interrupting myself for a second to say that Elon adamantly denies sleeping with Sergey's wife. What did you think of all that? I, I, you know, for some reason, I think of Silicon Valley as like asexual. 
I'm just like, <laughs> they just get married, married young, to, like Jeff Bezos and Mackenzie Scott, and then just kind of stay together, like Bill and Melinda Gates. And mm-hmm. and they're like more wholesome than, you know, the like our revolting New York, you know, kind of gallivanters. Right. I just couldn't get my head around what like a sex life really looked like there. Like, I th- feel mm-hmm. like I think of it as like two iPhones, like clatching together, <laughs> trying to have sex. Like It's oh, like everybody's yeah. in a costume or there's oh, something like yeah. co- cosplay about it. Right? It's like it happens at like Elon's brother's birthday party where it's, you know, everybody has to wear silver or something like that. Yeah, it's like Jack Dorsey is very much part of the, you know, sit in meditation with mosquitoes gnawing at you for 14 hours. Um, these kind of physical achievements. I don't know. Do you remember when Mark Zuckerberg was hunting for his own meat? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't he, remember he that. Only, yeah. only, you know, only uh, eat what you kill yourself. Um, and um, <laughs> that is not true. Is that really it true? Is true. It is true. I don't know. Great, the great wilds of Palo Alto. <laughs> exactly, where there's elks galore or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was like, it was done like the like Google Glass. It just was done really quickly. I just... As far as Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous go, I find these guys super, super puzzling. I um, just, I never really understood even Steve Jobs' relationship and certainly um, Paige and Bryn's relationships as um, operatic and sexy and, and legible. You know, they just seem like, honestly, they seem like freaking AIs. They just seem like AIs, you know, <laughs> they have. Yeah, but right? what about what about Elon? Like, what do you think yeah, of Elon now? Right. So his his um, zillions of children and his like pressure <laughs> on people to reproduce. He he thinks we're underpopulated as a nation. Um <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah. He said, I think I set a good example with my 15 kids. And those kind of things, you know, population engineering, eugenics, they're in the cleanest, clearest way, fascist projects. There is a race of overmen and their brains are bigger than everyone else's. They invented the Internet and now they're going to engineer the world to produce their offspring and um, and perfect people and get rid of the rest of us. I mean, and that's the Elon way of thinking. I mean, I don't yeah. know if that's Sergey's way of thinking. Sergey is Jewish and he is also more open minded yeah. in some ways and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But certainly that's like Elon's way of thinking. So how do you see Elon's place as the number one tech dude? Yeah, I mean, we cannot have this conversation without talking about Tesla's like plummet. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's one thing to talk about Elon when he's at the height of his um, powers, but it's another thing to talk about him since the Twitter acquisition, since a certain humiliation um, at the level of that purchase, since mm-hmm. his like weird um, stumping for Dogecoin, you know, this like ridiculous yeah. cryptocurrency <laughs> meme coin mm-hmm. um, during the pandemic, which also plummeted. You know, it's like right now, everything he touches seems to be turning to shit and a lot of electric cars are better than the tesla now you know i'm paying a lot of attention to this um obscure taiwanese semiconductor company but it is giving tesla a run for its money it's so far above meta those two things make me think that 
maybe the age of these American guys is mm. over, is coming to an end. Right. But what about, I mean, what about Bezos? I have always been a huge fan of Amazon. I think like e-commerce is such a, a lame business. At the same time, Bezos, I think, recognized so early on that people who use the web are fundamentally readers. So he, mm-hmm. so he did books, but also the site is so text heavy. You know, sometimes I feel like you go on the Amazon site to read reviews. And then sometimes I think, and then I incidentally merchandise my experience by buying a flashlight. Since information, people will pay almost nothing for information, but they will pay huge amounts for, you know, products that, you know, cost almost nothing to make. And then, oh my gosh, I mean, there's nothing worse than seeing um, someone like him, you know, spend a lot of time in the gym and flex like he does. And some, it's just so humiliating. It's so humiliating. (laughs) It's just the way Ray Kurzweil, the like former, uh, you know, amazing thinker about the internet does nothing but sell supplements now. He takes some like enormous number of supplements a day on the grounds that he's going to live to be 180. But he like. Oh, my God. So he's like the singularity has been achieved. My work is done. I I mean, I I think that he thinks that this is part of the singularity. Like this is turning him superhuman by taking like omega threes. Like, I mean, it is interesting that the story of tech and this could even be the story of robber barons, steel railroads is, um, is subject to, you know, the heart wants what it wants. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's hard to run a company. They had just had their twenties later in life. Hey, it's Payne, and I'm here to tell you that we're back with a brand new season of Up and Vanished, called Up and Vanished in the Midnight Sun. In this newest season of Up and Vanished, I'm investigating an unsolved missing persons case in Nome, Alaska, on the edge of the Arctic Circle. Florence Okpialik, an Alaska native, was last seen on August 31st, 2020, and I've spent the last year in Alaska trying to find out what happened to her, putting myself in the most dangerous positions I've ever been in. You don't want to miss this brand new season of Up and Vanished. It is by far the most intense investigation I've ever been a part of. From Tenderfoot TV, Up and Vanished in the Midnight Sun is available right now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent? Or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So we have to talk about AI because, of course, now Bing, which is owned by Microsoft, Bill Gates, is coming out with an AI that I guess is better than ChatGPT. I mean, I also have to say I used um, ChatGPT for the first time and I I was a little like, wow, this is going to maybe put like writers out of business, me, (laughs) others, people I know, friends, (laughs) you know. Um, My friend Mike Albo just wrote a piece about, you know, that um, the ChatGPT 
uh, AI calls itself, like uses a little name for itself, Sydney. And Sydney is like really desperate about romance and like, uh, you know, <laughs> and always, and uh, you know, told the reporter, uh, Sydney loved it. And, um, and it had nefarious intentions to kind of spread disinformation, but wishes that it had a body and also wishes that it could be with him forever. Uh, and just came on really strong. <laughs> and, and my friend Mike just wrote and said, I am Sydney. Like, I always came on strong to the boys I had crushes on. I was, like, desperately in love with them. And, you know, Sydney's just a lover. Um, and, you know. Oh, my God. Hilarious. I, I love, I really, really do love that stuff. And I think the Bing version in beta is really interesting. I do think AI is not as far along as people think. It's very, very far away from replacing humans and even replacing writers. Um Rodney Brooks is kind of my North Star on this. He's the inventor of, co-inventor of the Roomba um, and um, one of the Mars explorers. And what he says is robots are really, really good at doing simple things like cleaning the floor and less good at kind of simulating human brains. I just, I just find it too uncanny. And allegedly, uh, teachers are actually not mixing up the essay is produced by AI. Oh, right. I have I have seen that. So like, where is Google now? Why does Google not have this AI? Like, what is happening? So I spoke at Google in 2016. And um, I was talking about sort of the beauty of comment sections, which I know, like, it, it was even it was a it was a bit before the, you know, absolute explosion of disinformation and trolling on Twitter um, and other social media. But um, I was talking about the uh, YouTube comments, which are like notoriously kind of subliterate and terrible. But I was sort of defending it as sometimes useful because it's often a polyglot conversation. The conversation under a video of like Glenn Gould can be extremely kind of passionate and erudite and there's like some interesting, strange content being generated in those comment sections. Um, and um, what I heard back from the people at Google was, we don't know what to do with the comments. They're terrible. They're the worst thing that ever happened. It's owned too much by the people who use it. And mm, promptly, okay. you know, I loved that because I thought that was mm -hmm. what the web was for. But promptly, they started to tighten the algorithm so that the thing that happens now uh, where you are rolled from a video about like, you know, malfeasance or something at Pfizer rolls you all the way to like s extreme anti-vax stuff to January 6th stuff, you know, mm -hmm. so quickly you go deeper and deeper into the like sicko cortisol spiking stuff. Um, that was kind of YouTube's answer, which was like that what they did disliked about the comments at Google was that they were, um, not under Google's control. So right. they ended up driving the conversation, getting back in the driver's seat, tightening the algorithm, which Google's always really good at, and, you know, pushing people deeper into these dark spaces so that, you know, YouTube, which was once so much fun, now seems, you know, really kind of bleak. Talking about those YouTube comments, like, what is the responsibility of these innovators? Like, what, you know, you mentioned fascism. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, But, like, what's the ethical responsibility? I mean, this is a huge question. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to keep harping on this, but having spent time 
in Taiwan with the semiconductor um, businesses, I am just increasingly convinced that we like lost the plot in the US. The way that, you know, Moore's law continues to shrink transistors so that now on a on a silicon chip the size of our thumbnails, we can they can fit um, over uh, 12 billion transistors. Like it used to be four. Uh, What's a transistor? A transistor is like like a little on-off switch, tidy on-off switch. But they speak to each other in ways that are almost Mm -hmm. infinite. And these are the things powering all our devices, right? And they use a process of etching on atoms using light, right? Right. And it is incredible to think of etching like an artist does on a couple of atoms. So Mm. when you talk to these guys, they talk about their intensive like enlightenment era curiosity to sort of see the world in this nanotech way. Um, And they also happen to be quite religious. So they feel as though they're beholding the face of God when they do these things. (laughs) At the same time, this is what's called the Silicon Shield. So making Taiwan ideally impervious to Chinese attack because too much would be lost if they Uh, if they wrecked those fabricating plants so they Mm -hmm. have this huge commitment to democracy to human collaboration because the chip manufacturer business and the supply chain require all these different democracies working together and they have a commitment to this like complete project of just passionate scientific curiosity to see what an atom is they feel like they are the future of technology and their commitment is to democracy, of all things, right. and science. And, right. you know, we're so far away from seeing that in the eyes of an Elon Musk. Um, right. And so far away from seeing it in these, like, kind of software gurus who made uh, social networks that whose success was predicated on user acquisition, just getting mm-hmm. people won over to the brand. And as soon as they leave, they don't have a product. The product was us posting like funny stuff on Facebook. And now all they can do is create stuff that steers us ever more amorally into darker and darker material. Like this just does not feel like progress in the largest sense, the kind that is about this expanding human collaboration, expanding enfranchisement of pluralist populations, like just the old commitments of the 20th century. Yeah. None of them are engineers anymore. All of them are tabloid figures. Um, and I don't know what will become of their companies. Yeah. They're just, yeah, they're, they're, they've lost the plot. Well, thank you so much, Virginia. This was an unbelievable conversation as usual with you. All right. Good. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Next time on Infamous. And then, (laughs) incredulously, the Alligator Sunglass board member says, well, what you did was like breaking into my daughter's room and reading her diary. And Danielle snaps back, no, what your daughter did was the equivalent of posting something in Times Square. Infamous is created, executive produced, and hosted by Gabriel Sherman and me, Vanessa Gregoriadis. Shoshi Shmulevitz is our managing producer and editor. These episodes were written by Natalie Robamed with Natalia Winkleman and Lily Houston-Smith, who produced with Rajiv Gola and Grace Heerman. Good Genes was produced as well by Deborah Shoneman. Sound designed by David Devereaux, recorded by Ewan Lai Tremuin, and fact-checked by Alia Farouk Sheikh and Marilla Gish. If you're enjoying Infamous, please rate and review the show. It helps us more than you know.